The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! Need my sister and my daughter! Rosebud. What's in the box? And like that, he's gone. Hello, and welcome to another Slate spoiler special podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and this week we will be spoiling Guillermo del Toro's new film, The Shape of Water, with Slate senior editor and browbeat correspondent Sam Adams. Hello. Hello. Um, yes, I'm glad you're here to talk with me about Shape of Water. I get, as usual, going to get a very quick thumbnail reaction, and uh, and then and then I'll give you mine, yay or nay. Yes, and I am, I am as usual, going to give a slightly complicated uh, quick reaction, but um I like this movie. I'm very like sympathetic to what it's trying to do. I don't think it pulls a lot of it off. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I should pr- maybe precede my reaction to it by saying I was really looking forward to it and maybe built up my expectations too high. And I came in here wanting to make some claim about this is a return to Pan's Labyrinth, which is to me Guillermo del Toro's best movie still because of blank. And then I couldn't find the blank. It's not his first monster movie since Pan's Labyrinth. It's not his first original story since Pan's Labyrinth, right? There's been Crimson Peak and Pacific yeah. Rim and all of those categories have been fulfilled by something, but it still feels to me like a return to that genre, right? In that it's a in that it's a fairy tale that kind of mixes magical creatures with politics in the contemporary world, and and yet it's not nearly as good as Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, I mean, it, well, I guess it's his first gothic romance since Crimson Peak, if we want to, <laughs> which is uh, only two years. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, I mean, there are no movies in between, but still, um, <laughs> no. I mean, it is it is very much in a vein uh, of things that he has done before. And I think the people who really love it and God bless them, I wish I was one of them. I wanted to love it but so much. I, yeah. But I mean, I think it is really a, a distillation of a lot of things, of a lot of things that he's done before. And it is um, in some ways kind of a Hollywoodization of it, too. I mean, it, it's very, as we'll I'm sure talk about, it, it's very kind of deliberately, explicitly steeped in old Hollywood movies and, and fairy tales and I think has in some ways kind of a softer edge than something like uh, Pan's Labyrinth or The Devil's Backbone, which I I mean, I think those are still his his two best movies as well. Um, you know, it's more, I think, kind of openly sentimental than those ones as well, which I think some people really respond to. I mean, there are some big, real kind of swing for the fences, tearjerker moments in this. And, uh, I you know, I don't blame people for falling for them. Um you know, I wish I did. I'm always envious of people who, you know, love things more than I do. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I never judged this movie for being too sentimental, but I was not really able to kind of float away, as it were, on its waves of sentiment. OK, let's get into the spoiling. So um, Shape of Water is a love story. As you say, it's sort of a gothic romance, although unlike Crimson Peak, it doesn't actually take place in a gothic setting. But in 1962 in Baltimore, where for some reason a top secret government facility is located. Are there really top secret government facilities in Baltimore or were there in 1962? Not, not as far as we know. (laughs) Yeah, How would we know? Right. Um, And working at this top secret facility is Eliza, who is a mute maid, a a cleaning lady played by Sally Hawkins. Um, Actually, we should maybe start with the very first shot of the movie, which I think is it really builds up your expectations. You, it starts off in a more fantastical universe than it rejoins until the very end. In other words, like the two most fantastical parts of the movie are basically the first shot and the last shot. And the very first shot I absolutely loved, which is the hallway of the apartment building that her character lives in. 
um, and it's completely filled with water. Everything's floating, and the camera sort of slowly floats down this this hallway into her apartment. It really, really reminded me of a Gregory Crudson photograph. You know those right. those photographs that are lit like movies, and and that one series where everything's floating in water. It was absolutely gorgeous as an opening. Right, and it also has that opening shot, which kind of you know, flo- I mean, like it literally floats through this underwater area, and you see um, Sally Hawkins' character kind of you know, floating up towards the top of her bedroom and, and, you know, apparently, you know, breathing underwater. And there's this voiceover from, we'll probably recognize Richard Jenkins' voice and we'll kind of meet his character later in the film. But, um, you know, this voiceover that literally frames the movie as a a fairy tale describes as being set in, I think it's the last days of a fair prince's reign, um, which we eventually find out is kind of, you know, late 62, early 63. So sort of the end of the Kennedy administration. Um, and yeah, sets, I mean, sets this very deliberate, you know, this is a fairy tale in quotes, double underlined um, thing at the beginning. And, and uh, that narration, and this is sort of a, a pet peeve of mine, I guess, a little bit, but that narration doesn't come back until the very end. Like it's just the frame sequence. And I always, I feel like that is often kind of a, kind of a shortcut or, or a kind of, you know, contrived way of like telling you what the movie you're about to see is rather than letting you find out. And you know, her character kind of there's a shot of her character waking up, you know, in in uh, dry, non underwater bed. Right. right implying that, that that was all a dream, implying that it's all a dream. But you also sort of the, the narration kind of tells you that you're maybe looking at the end of end of the story. And, and she's that, connected with water from the beginning. Yes. Right. I mean, the first thing you see her do is wake up, get up in the morning. She puts on her tea or coffee or whatever. And then she proceeds to go masturbate in the bathtub, which is part of her morning ritual. So she's associated with kind of sexuality and water sexuality in water from from the very beginning and eggs a lot of eggs that's right she makes herself a boiled egg every morning which also becomes a theme later on because she feeds it to the monster so let's get to the monster all right so she works in this uh cold war type facility where secret scary things are going on that she doesn't really understand because she's just pushing a mop bucket around and uh you take it away so what what mysterious thing takes place at the very beginning in this facility. I mean, she discovers, you know, fairly early on that the uh, secret that this lab is housing and it sort of comes in along with this Michael Shannon character who's this very sort of, you know, brutal, creepy, sinister uh, government security man um, is, you know, essentially the creature from the Black Lagoon. I mean, it comes in in this metal tank and, you you know, you sort of know it's something alive in there. And it's they kind say of it's a, from the Amazon River, right? Yes, yeah. So it's this kind of, you know, underwater um, or I guess amphibious uh, kind of, you know, gill monster um, who you know, is being studied by the, the sort of a vague explanation that they're interested in his dual breathing apparatus to help astronauts survive in, in space. But the really the main, you know, it's, it's a very deliberately kind of purely Cold War story. And the main reason that the Americans are concerned about having this thing is so that the Russians don't have it. Right. And I mean, the, the value of the creature to the government is, is very unclear, given that pretty early on in the movie, the goal becomes to kill the creature, right, rather than to study it, which if he's the only creature like that, or at least the only one that's ever been found and caught, would seem to undermine the whole project. Right. I mean, there, there's a line later on, and I guess we can I'm jump right to this since we're, we're spoiling things, but it's revealed that this character who kind of seems to be this... Um, you know, sort of meek, you know, sympathetic, uh, I, I guess, you know, scientist played by Michael Stuhlbar, we find out as a Russian spy. And there's a moment towards the end where he is, you know, and he's supposed to kind of, you know, steal this thing or get the Russians the plans or whatever. And then he finds out 
um, that the Americans are going to, you know, cut it apart to study it. And he says to his, you know, Russian bosses, okay, well, how can, you know, how can we get this thing out of there? Because you realize at that point, he's kind of sympathetic to the thing and wants it to live. And they tell him, just kill it before they can, before they can do it, kill it and, and dispose of it before they can study it. And Stolar's character is either name known as Bob or Dimitri kind of says, well, then how do we learn from it? And his bosses say, it's not important that we learn. It's important that the Americans don't learn. Right. Did it bother you how little we know about the creature? I mean, I didn't want there to be the the expository dumb scene of a scientist in front of a blackboard explaining everything about the creature. But the fact that we know so little about the creature, he never gets a name. He never gets there's never any sense of whether there are others or a sort of community of these creatures or are they endangered or what <laughs> are they magical? You know, he seems to have these bioluminescent kind of healing qualities, but we don't really learn the source of those. Did that bother you? I mean, I, I kind of wanted more more depth. I, th- I mean, I think the movie kind of falls between two stools in some way because, I, I mean, I think Guillermo del Toro is really good at kind of, you know, the mysterious and the unexplained, you know, and there's so much of that in, in Pan's Labyrinth, for example. And so we get, you know, little bits and pieces of this creature came from an Amazon. He was came from the Amazon. He was worshipped like a god down there. And then uh, Michael Shannon has this kind of, you know, offhanded colonialist monologue about slaughtering the natives who were, you know, just kind of, you know, idiots with bows and arrows and and implied that the U.S. just kind of mowed them down to to steal this thing and bring it up. And and uh, I think it's Richard Jenkins' character asks, you know, have you always, you know, are you just alone? Have you always been alone there? And, and the creature learns a few words of sign language from Sally Hawkins, but we never get answers to any of those questions. Uh, you know, and I like that mysterious element of it in some ways. I think it doesn't jibe that well with some of the more kind of double underlined explainy this is the point of this movie bits in in the film. And so that's it's manages to kind of be unsatisfying for me on both levels. I mean it's not really mysterious enough to be kind of a pure fairy tale. Um but it, it's kind of also doesn't, you know, explain enough to give to give you sort of this fully, you know, fleshed out more like work through allegory, I guess. Yeah, to me, it just it made the creature static as a character. I mean, science aside, even if we don't have humans ever understand what he is, except sort of for Sally Hawkins, who sort of senses intuitively what he is, it would be nice to for him to reveal a little bit more of what he is. I mean, he looks incredible. We should talk about just the monster's look. He's played in a suit, a full body, he's sort of a full body puppetry creature, which is something that Guillermo del Toro likes to do and obviously did in Pan's Labyrinth incredibly well. Um and and he's played by Doug Jones, who is the traditional muse for these Guillermo del Toro creatures, who's this very lithe, dancer-like kind of figure. And uh, and he, he looks really amazing. He's sort of like the creature from the Black Lagoon if the creature from the Black Lagoon was sexy. Yeah, I mean, the, the way in which the movie is most moving to me is in a kind of extra textual sense as the kind of culmination of not the ending point, um, as far as I know, but at the kind of culmination of this relationship between Guillermo del Toro and Doug Jones. It's the sixth movie they've made together. Um, right. He's in both the Hellboy movies. Yeah. He's, he's the Abe Sapien in the Hellboy movies. He's the pale male in Pan's Labyrinth. He's a lot of the, the ghosts in Crimson Peak. I mean, he he's uh, you know, an actor who's been in a ton of stuff, although often not had lines. He, he come, sort of came into it as a contortionist, and he plays a lot of basically creatures in Is suits. he a contortionist? I think that originally he was wow. a kind of a, a He contortionist. should do more of that in the movies, like fit into a little box or something. Yeah, so he's in this incredible, you know, physical actor, um, you know, very sort of, you know, slim, flexible person. And, and the fact that Del Toro has basically written this wordless starring role for him and really two, two wordless starring roles for him and Sally Hawkins, that's kind of very moving to me. I mean, it's, you know, Doug Jones is... 
probably never going to get a chance to play a role this, uh, you know, so to speak, fleshed out again. And I, I mean, I think it's an incredible physical performance. I mean, I think he tells us a lot about this creature's sort of changing affect. And, you know, it's hard to convey that you're sort of, you know, falling in love with this other person when you don't have, I mean, he doesn't have a face, really. He's got, you know, prosthetics all over the place and and a suit. And he, you know, certainly has no lines and is only, he can make these sort of, you know, dolphin-like screeches and things. But it's not really, you know, he's not romanticized in that way. Although he is, as you mentioned, kind of hot just because he's sort of slim and, and tall and muscly. Uh, but, so I really like I like the way kind of that gets across and I like the wordless aspect of their relationship. I think, you know, and that's a very nervy thing for the movie to do. And I think it loses its nerve sometimes as far as. Can you give an example of what well, it loses its nerve? Yeah, I mean, there's there's one moment in the movie that 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 probably I think bugs me the most as far as a single moment. I have sort of issues with Shannon's character, which we can circle back around to. But there is a, a moment, I guess about two thirds of the way through the film when when um, Eliza and the monster have kind of fully, you know, literally consummated their romance and they're kind of, you know, sitting at a table at her apartment and the she's just kind of thinking and then the lights kind of drop away and she's in this single spot and all of a sudden she starts kind of croaking, speaking in this kind of croaky voice um, and we're kind of moving into a fantasy sequence and then uh, the the film shifts fully into black and white and she starts belting out this song from called You'll Never Know, which I, I gather is from a sort of obscure 1943 movie called Hello, Frisco, Hello. Um, but it's still also just a standard, right? It's just a pop standard. Yes. You'll never know just how much I love you. Yeah. So, so it, that scene didn't work for you? Yeah. I mean, it goes into this big Hollywood fantasy and, it, and it's a sort of, you know, Fred and Ginger number, but with her and the creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, and you know, that's one of the things where I can, I can like, I don't begrudge other people for getting swept up in that, but I feel like it, it's a weakness to, first of all, I think it's a very kind of anodyne, um, conception of Hollywood movies as, as fantasy and, and escapism. And I also think it, it's a problem that, you know, having given us this character and really allowed her to express herself without speech that you then posit sort of the fullest expression of her love and the way that she fantasizes about herself as, you know, if not speaking, at least singing, kind of vocalizing this thing. And I think it really undermines a lot of the work that the film has done up to that point. I see what you mean. I mean, it's it's a little bit ableist or something, right? It's kind of assuming that the ultimate expression of love would be to overcome your own natural state of being. Right. And I think it's okay. I mean, there, there are moments when her character refers to herself as um, being incomplete, you know, and, and that's, you know, I, I, that's, you know, an offensive idea from a sort of, you know, disability rights point of view. But I mean, I think it's okay for characters to feel things like that. And, I mean, and there, I, and there's also the implication or maybe even the outright statement in one of her conversations with Richard Jenkins that she was that it was because of abuse in her childhood that she is mute. Right. She has these gill like again, a yeah. little bit obvious nudge, nudge, gill like scars on both sides of her neck. And I think although I missed exactly who said this and when that her vocal cords were cut in her childhood or something, which is a very strange form of child abuse. But yeah, I don't think it's ever explicitly said, but you, I mean, you know, she is Michael Shannon deserves that her last name is Esposito, which means orphan and that she was kind of, you know, literally not even left on a doorstep, actually kind of left like floating in a river like Moses um, and, and retrieved as a child and that she had already been scarred and, and rendered mute. So I, yeah, the the implication is that someone kind of cut her throat and disabled her voice box somehow, but it's 
that's a really, really specific injury to do to a child. So that actually seems I mean, that's one of the many places. And here's where we should get to Michael Shannon's character, probably. But the 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 idea that it has to be a result of this child abuse torture seems like another one of the many places where this movie stacks the deck pretty hard. Right. Right. I mean, we already have you know this lovely mute poor, you know, innocuous woman, lonely. I mean, just somebody who we have every reason to sympathize with. And then she has to be pitted against this guy who's sort of the the most stock villain possible. I mean, Michael Shannon's so good that he still brings a lot to the character. But uh, but let's talk about some of the ways in which his character is majorly deck stacked. Yes. I mean, I, I think in some ways it's a great performance. I mean, it's probably the, you know, creepiest, most sinister incarnation of sort of you know, white male government authorities since Michael Shannon's character on Boardwalk Empire, um, which is, I mean, this is kind of virtually the same character. He's another sort of, you know, sexually perverted, uh, you know, authoritarian, um, you know, government, uh, you know, I don't know, a flunkier strongman. He really needs to be allowed to be like a harp strumming angel in his next movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I mean, he really, I mean, he really like, you know, sinks every one of his his teeth into this. And there are some, you know, really um, great um, from a, you know, acting point of view, not like what a wonderful thing he did, but there's like a moment where he's talking to, he's interrogating uh, Sally Hawkins and Octavia Spencer, who plays her kind of coworker, her very chatty coworker, who's kind of makes up for the fact that Sally Hawkins can't speak by speaking twice as much. Um, and so they're being interrogated about, uh, you know, an incident in the lab and he, and he starts getting into kind of, he learns that Octavia Spencer's name is, is Delilah. So he kind of gets in, gets into theology a little bit and starts talking about characters from the Bible. And then he, you know, t- talking about whether or not this creature is human or whether or not we can sort of empathize with it. And he starts talking about, you know, well, did, did, you know, do you believe that God looks like that? Do you believe that God, you know, created that thing in his image? And he's, don't you think that God looks like me or like you? And then he says, well, you know, a little bit, a little bit more like me, I guess. And the sort of the, you know, casual, but incredibly like pointed racism there is, you know, it's just so sharply underlined and they play it off Octavia Spencer's face so well, rather than, kind of, you know, viscerally enjoying whatever needle he thinks he's he's sticking into her works really well. So he's a great villain in that respect. But I mean, boy, does it go over the top. I mean, this is a guy who has two progressively rotting fingers stapled to his hand for like nine tenths of the movie. I was going to get to the fingers. I mean, there's some moments where this movie has some gratuitous gross outs and we can spoil them here because I'm not going to do it in my review. (laughs) But one of them is the fingers and I really hated the fingers. And part of it is just that like, gratuitous body horror just really makes me mad. I feel like Cronenberg can get away with it, but when a lot of people just throw in things like, hey, my villain just happens to have two gangrenous fingers, which he loses them in the course of the movie. How does he? Is it because the monster bites them? The monster bites them off, and then Eliza finds them like under a cabinet in in the room, and then they sew them back on. And then they slowly rot away for the rest of the movie, and there are not one but two separate scenes where you see him wrenching part or all of the fingers off and it's just it's just disgusting and i don't know exactly what it's doing in there and the second one i'll just throw it in is why did the monster have to eat the head off richard jenkins cat <laughs> and first we haven't even gotten to who richard jenkins is and he's a major character in the movie as yep. you say his voiceover opens and closes the movie so he's the next door neighbor as in apartment hall next door neighbor of the sally hawkins character and he is this closeted gay painter, commercial painter, like an illustrator, who's been laid off from his job for some reason that we don't know. It's implied, I think, maybe because he's gay. Well, also, I mean, he's a like a recovering alcoholic, like he says to his former co-worker, That's right. like he hasn't been drinking. So, That's right. Yeah. 
So he's he's really down and out and kind of a pitiful character. And once again, like Sally Hawkins character, I think the deck is kind of stacked because he's so how could you not love, you know, the, the adorable Richard Jenkins? And sometimes it, it got on my nerves sort of how helpless and endearing he was. But one of his helpless endearing qualities is that he has all these beloved cats that wander around his apartment and uh, while he watches old romantic movies with Sally Hawkins. And uh, and it after they kidnap the creature, which we're jumping ahead here, but we'll go back and, and get to it. So after they manage to smuggle the creature out of the facility and are keeping him hidden and keeping him basically hydrated in Sally Hawkins' bathtub, there's this moment that he breaks out and eats the head off one of Richard Jenkins' cats. And that brings us back to the gangrenous fingers again. I just thought that was in there to make people shudder and go, ooh, gross. And that it was just a, a needless sacrifice of a perfectly good cat. Yeah, I'm weirdly at, you know, and I, I am a cat person. Um, I'm weirdly sympathetic to that particular moment just because th- there's... Because you like a tasty cat head? I, I guess so. And, and, you know, Del Toro, I mean, this isn't a horror movie exactly, but he kind of comes out of that. And one of the, you know, one of the moments when I kind of first, you know, fell in love with him as a filmmaker was he made a movie called Mimic and I think, uh, 97, which is basically about kind of giant cockroaches living in the uh, New York subways. I totally forgot he was behind Mimic, yes. Yeah, and there's a moment where, you know, these two kids go exploring down the tunnels and, you know, you know it's a horror movie, so the kids are going to find something you know horrible and creepy and then they're gonna get out of there somehow because they're kids you know and then he like the giant cockroach like eats one of the kids you know and you like you don't do that in horror movies it's like you don't kill the kids and then you like you never kill a dog you know because you just lose the audience that way or you know or or a cat like people just really react strongly to the deaths of animals and i liked that he was you know really saying like this you know this is not safe like kind of not playing by those rules and i you know and he's you know, telling us in in that moment, I mean, that this, you know, creature like really is a creature like it's a wild animal. It's not just some sort of like misunderstood misfit. You know, it, it really is. You know, it can be dangerous in the way that even, you know, your beloved pup can kind of snap, you know, like sink its teeth into a child if they if approach it the wrong way. You right. Know, that there's never you know, they're never sort of fully domesticated. So I like that. And Jenkins does say that his character immediately forgives the fish man for eating his cat. Yeah. And then the next shot there, they make sure to have like five live cats like crawling around <laughs> in the apartment. So it's like, well, there's still cats. It only ate one. It's sort of but, funny how they trust him right away. Right. Then Richard Jenkins just says, oh, leave the kitties alone and we'll just let you play. Yeah. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So we didn't get to the, the to the smuggling of the creature out of the facility, which is really the main action of the movie, at least until the very end. Um, so so Octavia Spencer, the other cleaner at the facility, and Sally Hawkins conspire together. Eventually, Michael Stuhlbarg also helps them out with this in uh, in this complicated scheme involving a laundry van, the good old laundry van prison escape, yep. and uh, and get the creature out of the facility. Yeah, and, and that's sort of like the big heist sequence in the movie. And one of one of the great sort of this is actually uncharacteristically for this movie, but kind of a subtle joke in it is that you know Michael Shannon is this kind of terrifying authority figure who has this uh, you know uh, cattle, uh, cattle prod that he calls uh, I think an Alabama howdy do, which kind of links him with the kind of you know brutal s- southern 
the, the sort of the brutal repression of civil rights protests in the Deep South, which we see on on TV. An- another very obvious hammering moment, I think. Yes. I mean, it's enough that he has a cattle prod and that he's an obvious, obvious white supremacist. We don't have to see right. the TV footage in the background of the civil rights riots. Right. But that, so he's terrifying, but he's also like not that good at his job. So there's this moment where he's kind of lecturing um, Stolbart's character, trying to put the fear into him. And Stolbart's just looking over his shoulder at the security monitors behind him where he sees um, I guess it's, you know, Sally Hawkins kind of planning this he- this heist and immediately knows what she's doing. So the fact that Stolberg is so busy, or uh, sorry, that the fact that Shannon is so busy kind of just lecturing him and playing the authority figure and misses the thing that's going on, like literally right over his shoulder, I think is a great sort of in-joke. Yeah, so that's that's like the big kind of action sequence in in the movie where they um, smuggle the creature out in, in a laundry cart filled with damp towels and... So they're very quickly um, discovered and in, in, in having gotten the creature. And then, right? I mean, and then the question becomes, is Michael Shannon going to get to them in time? How long do you think it's implied that the creature stays in her apartment? That's a little bit unclear. It's, I think it's like a few. I mean, there's a calendar on her wall. So I think it's, you know, a, a few days. Like Shannon kind of is, he falls under this assumption that it must have been some sort of crack Russian strike team of like at least 10 agents. Because, of course, nobody else could have gotten through it. And then um, Stillbark's like last last moment on screen is just him kind of laughing at Michael Shannon being like, oh, you know, it wasn't a strike team. Like, all, you know, they just clean. Right. You know? Oh, that's a really horrible moment, too, when he yeah. sort of tortures Michael Stuhlbarg. Although it seems in a way like, what are the stakes right then? I mean, he's obviously about to die anyway. He's been shot, I don't know, three or four times. And the idea that he would reveal anything at that point. I mean, he has nothing to lose, sort of. Yeah, it's just, just kind of a pain thing. Like that, that moment there, like Shannon has this, you know, monologue about... Um, he's kind of eats these kind of green hard candies throughout the movie. And then he has this monologue about how he loves, I love candy. And, you know, sometimes I just bite into him, but I usually like to take it slow. And it's sort of this very thuddingly obvious kind of, you know, Bond villain monologue about how Stolbarg's character is going to die, you know, and whether it's going to be, you know, quick and relatively painless or whether Shannon is going to draw it out and cause him as much pain as, as possible. And it's that torture that kind of gets him to reveal it. But it's it's just such kind of bad action movie villain dialogue. It's such a kind of clunky monologue. I just completely rolled my eyes at that. Yeah, I scene. think in general, looking back, I think that the, the scenes involving villainy, Michael Shannon, certainly Michael Shannon's family and home life, those scenes were could have been totally excised and were kind of obvious and boring. The real heart of this movie and the thing that did keep you that did. I mean, for all the negative things we're saying about it, I did experience some moments of, you know, magic. And yeah. they they almost all were between Sally Hawkins and the Doug Jones sea creature. Yeah, that I mean, that yeah, I think there's a really lovely kind of acting relationship between the two of them. It's a lovely story. I think the two of them are lovely together. I mean, I think, you know, for whatever it's worth, like, I, don't, I mean, I've seen Sally Hawkins and kind of loved her in other movies. And I, and I don't miss hearing her voice in this at all. I mean, there's no moment, which is one of the reasons why that kind of fantasy, you know, musical number like rubbed me so much the wrong way is I really just never missed hearing her voice at any point. I think it's such a full performance um, just in body language and a little bit of sign language. That you really Do you think if she know. hadn't spoken and sung in that in that moment, if it had just turned to black and white as it did and then become a Fred and Ginger style dance sequence between them that you would have liked it more? I, I mean, probably, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's, for me, it was just kind of a break you don't need. It's kind of a fairy tale within a fairy tale, and the movie is already so stylized and allegorical that it, it's, um, I guess to steal a phrase from David Simon, it felt a little bit like a hat on a hat 
Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a great phrase. Yeah. But I will say that when the color started to drain out, you know, there have been so many clips. She watches old movies all the time with Richard Jenkins on TV, right? And there's at right. the end of the in the credit sequence, there's a huge number of, of old classics that are that are credited. And I have to say that the moment that the color sort of started to drain out of that scene right before she starts to speak and sing was was kind of thrilling. I mean, just the idea that that just the technical ambition, you know, of, of turning from one kind of movie to another kind. Yeah. And, and the way those I mean, we won't get into all of them, obviously, but the way those clips are used is really interesting because partly it's just, you know, Richard Jenkins character is a little bit of this sort of, you know, stereotypical gay best friend who just likes to kind of, you know, sit at home alone and pine for the, you know, straight guy across the street and, um, you know, watches old movies on, on TV. But there are you know, I think the very first clip that we see him watching is of, you know, Bojangles dancing with um, Shirley Temple, which is obviously a very loaded um, kind of relationship that I'm I mean, like saving Glover kind of really deconstructed and in, in bring the noise, bring the funk back, you know, way back when, um, you know, and then there's later there's a clip from uh, Dobie Gillis where Michael Shannon kind of looks at it and goes like, that's America, you know, this like totally like sanitized version of like beat counterculture is like that's you know kind of what I, I think of America as being so that and his illustrations commentary. too Richard Jenkins illustrations are these very um sort of Norman Rockwell kitsch right I mean there's 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 a sense in general that Guillermo del Toro wants to to put in a frame this idealized vision of 50s America and then expose the this, ugly this reality behind white it. nuclear family gathered around a jello mold yeah. right yeah um, yeah, and, and I, it's. I mean, we haven't really talked about this aspect of the movie because I guess because it's almost so obvious. It's like why bother mentioning it? But uh, you know, the movie is is very deliberately framed as. I mean, it's a movie in which the kind of main good characters are you know a disabled woman, a black woman, uh, you know, gay man in 1962, and this you know kind of scaly creature from the Amazon, and then all all the you know bad guys like Michael Shannon and, and the general above him and his flunkies are all these kind of you know crew cut you know white men in white shirts and, and black ties and that dichotomy is you know I th- you know so kind of obvious and and clear that it almost I think it almost kind of undermines itself but I mean that's definitely one of the dynamics that's set up in the film and it's one of the reasons why that kind of like Bojangles clip is is interesting to me because it kind of has a you know, uh, there's some sort of acknowledgement that the the myths or the, you know, the dreams that society was built on up to the point were also like, the, you know, racism was like a foundational part of them. And there's um, this person that Jenkins character is in love with is the uh, this guy who owns a pie franchise across the street. And he meets him and it's uh, sort of Southern styled. And the guy comes in speaking in this, you know, fakey Southern accent. And then Jenkins kind of owns, earns his confidence. And the guy says, well, actually, I'm from Ottawa. But later on, you see him deny service to this very kind of violently deny service to this black couple who's wandered in there and, and just wants to get a slice of pie. And it's like it, the, he's not American, but he's sort of taken on this kind of Southern racism along with this fake Southern accent. Like, so it, it's it doesn't exactly matter where where the characters are from, because and again, like Stolbar's character is this Russian who somehow has kind of incorporated these the humanist side of American values rather than the kind of, you know, jingoist racist side of it. And uh, this Canadian who goes in the other direction, but there is, you know, it is very much about that 
you know, particular strain of Americanism, I guess, and, and the conflict that was building around it at that time. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, the way you describe it is, is much more subtle than the way it's, <laughs> it's presented in the movie. Um, I guess one thing I want to talk about before we get to the ending ending and actually spoil what happens in the last couple scenes is um, is the look of the movie. We haven't really talked about the craft and the color. And, you know, it's it's a huge part of this movie, the, the visual choices that Guillermo del Toro makes. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? So, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's a beautiful movie to look at. It was shot by, um, I guess it's probably pronounced Dan Lawson, who is uh, a cinematographer that Del Toro worked with on Crimson Peak and then way back on Mimic um, before that. And I don't, I don't think anything in between. So it's, you know, the whole thing is framed in these kind of underwater, you know, green and blue hues. And I mean, the color green plays a very, um, you know, it's practically a supporting character in the movie. I mean, it's the, the color that, Richard Jenkins jello needs to change too. And it's, uh, you know, the color of, of the water and it's a uh, car. When a car salesman sells Michael Shannon, a new car, he tells him it's kind of the color of the future, although technically it's teal and not green. Um, so that, you know, it's really gorgeous. It has a lot of these kind of very elegant um, sort of, you know, brief tracking shots or, or camera movements that gives you again, this kind of underwater feel, even when, even though almost all of the movie takes place on, dry land and it, it's just i really watched it you know for a second time uh, just before we recorded this and i really just kind of marveled at the craft of it i mean they're just little little sequences like the kind of there's a run through for the heist which you don't even exactly know is a run through for the heist you're just kind of following sally hawkins around as she goes into you know various parts of the workplace and then culminates with her learning that um, the security camera in the loading bay can there's it has a blind spot because that's where the um, black custodial workers go to have their smoke breaks. Um, and that watching that sequence again, the first thing you see is when they're clocking in at the beginning of it, there's a no smoking sign like right next to the the time clock there. And that sort of that tells you that smoking is forbidden, that it's some place that they would have had to find something to hide. And then that becomes the place, the blind spot where they can smuggle this creature out. So it's just really well put together on that level and it's just kind of a pleasure to watch. Yeah, very, way. very sumptuous looking. I mean at times the periodization is is so stylized that it's it's almost overdone. You know, it's not it's not subtle that it takes place in nineteen sixty two. There's definitely a sense, you know, every time they leave their apartment they have to walk by the marquee that shows the films that are playing. And uh, I don't know, there's just there's something about the um the over decoration that sometimes felt a little bit oppressive to me, but you cannot deny that every detail has been attended to. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, I mean, it's a really, you know, stylized, as you say, kind of decorated movie. I mean, it's full of all these illusions. I mean, there's allusions to, you know, the story of Ruth and Samson and Delilah and, uh, you know, Occam's razor. And, and it just, I feel like it kind of smothers in all those layers of stylization and, and referentiality at, at some point. Yeah, you know, which it's, is something it's that not a movie that gives you a lot of space to breathe, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something he's always in, in danger of. I mean, like Crimson Peak, for example, was a very like, this is a gothic romance that is kind of about being a gothic romance. But I, I think... But it know, was also kitschy in a way this movie isn't. This movie has a sincerity. I, mean, I really liked Crimson Peak. I was one of the people who was really cheering for it. But um, but it's, it's definitely kitsch. Yeah, and I think that's... I mean, I think this movie is maybe less conscious kitsch in some ways. So let's get to the ending, um, which is which is a somewhat surprising. It's very conventional in the sense that it's extremely romantic, um, but but I didn't quite expect it to to end on the on the image it does. So Shannon manages to track them down. He does so because he goes to the Octavia Spencer character's apartment and attempts to get the information out of her about where they're keeping the monster. 
But it's not Octavia Spencer who gives him the information. It's her no good husband who we've been hearing about all through the movie from her, but who we only meet in this one scene. So he finds out the information, but it's too late to get to the monster because by the time he gets to Sally Hawkins' apartment, she has taken the monster to the the docks where she's told herself, we've seen this written on her calendar for days in advance, that when it rains, when the rains come, she's going to let the creature go free. And she discovers that she actually has to do that because he's getting sick. He's starting to lose his scales and not flourish in this environment of just living in a, a bathtub. Yes. So which, which is also one of the things that the movie doesn't. Like he's an amphibious creature, but somehow he can't stay out of the water that long. It's not never quite. Um, That's what I mean about wanting to know more about him, you know, without having a scientist at a blackboard. I wanted to get a sense of his natural rhythms and what it was that he needed in life. But at any rate, she and Richard Jenkins together get him down to the waterfront in the rain and they're about to let him go free when. And then Michael Shannon shows up and plugs them both. He puts two, I think, two bullets in the creature and one in, in Sally Hawkins. Um, and they both kind of, you know, fall down and start bleeding out. Um, and you, you know, Shannon, I think has some, you know, big speech and you think, oh no, the bad guys have won. And then the uh, creature heals itself because it has this kind of glowy ET healing power. And he um, s- kills Michael Shannon by s- thematically probably slashing him across the throat. Um, and then he heals Sally Hawkins and the cops pull up at that point because Octavia Spencer has kind of to make up for her husband's treachery. She has you know, called in the authorities herself. Um, and then the, the two of them, Sally Hawkins and the creature kind of head off to their little underwater paradise from the beginning of the movie. And that to me was the surprise. I mean, them getting shot or in some way attacked by Michael Shannon is not a surprise. Even him bringing her back to life like this movie is too romantic to just end on both of the romantic leads dying. Right. Yeah. Um, but but the, the the real magic comes in, and here's where I would have liked to know more about the creature's magical properties or lack of is is that somehow he converts her into an amphibian herself, right? He just he heals her with his bioluminescence. She comes back to life, and then they both jump off the dock into the water. And the very last shot, which is also the poster for the movie, which is extremely beautiful and recalls again that Gregory Crudson look from the beginning, yeah. is the two of them kind of descending together, embracing in the water. And uh, you get the sense that suddenly she can breathe, right? That maybe she's going to be able to live the rest of her life as a water creature. Yeah, these kind of gill-like scars that you mentioned that have been on her neck, the whole movie just waiting to open up into actual gills finally do and and there is uh, you know one of the i guess one of the very important moments there is that after you know the creature heals himself and right before he kind of you know rips michael shannon's throat over shannon says you know you are a god yeah uh, so and and shannon someone who's been kind of i guess i guess pious but not particularly good throughout the movie he's talked a lot about sin and and god and uh you know what's you know righteous and what isn't and samson destroying the temple and blah 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 um and then he kind of realizes that his you know theology is all screwed up at the end it's been been worshiping the wrong is is that supposed to show that he's repenting before dying uh i don't know if it's repenting i think he i think it's supposed to be he realizes that he's wrong right you know in the moment before death he realizes that he kind of um you know he you know, pledged himself to a country that before that has basically betrayed him. And this this general that he thought he was loyal to and had his back says that he is uh, headed for, I, be- I believe it's a universe of shit um, is the phrase. And so so he's, you know, pledged his loyalty to, to a country and then done things that are um, at least sort of aspirationally un-American. And he is, you know, believed in this in this christian god in a way that has you know not turned out very well for him either and um yeah so he's just you know 
worshipped at all the wrong altars, I guess. Right. Well, yeah, he gets what he deserves at the end. We yeah. don't we don't mourn Michael Shannon. But how do you feel about the the final descent and her becoming a fish person? I mean, I, I, well, this was maybe the moment in the movie when I most wanted to feel that swoony romantic involvement that that I was somewhat struggling to feel throughout. But as much as I admired the ending visually, I, I didn't really feel that satisfaction. And part of it, I think, was like I say, because the the creature had just not been sufficiently established as a character and as a different kind of being. Right. I mean, I think I think I'm I'm right there with you. I mean, I'm 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 very kind of invested in that image. Like it's beautiful, and it has this circularity because it brings us back to this you know the very first shot that we talked about before. But it's you know, and I think I'm was probably you know invested in the romance like somewhat at that point. But it, it yeah, it doesn't have the feeling of you know, it's not a, that happily live, lived after after thing. And it doesn't like, I mean, does she just go like live in the ocean now? Or like, what do they do? Like there's, I don't know, there's some element list missing there where it just, um, even if you knew where they were going or yeah. something, right. I mean, if you had some sense of, Oh, well there's a, they're going to swim to the Amazon together or something like that. I mean, I suppose maybe I'm, I'm demanding too much literality from this movie and we should just be happy to know that they're sort of immersed in an element together and that they are in love. But I wanted to feel like they were, joining something like i could picture their life i could picture you know the shape of water too where do they go yeah i don't think you want a sort of fairy tale ending where it says they lived happily ever after and you immediately go how right <laughs> right yeah. um okay well we sound like we were really down on on shape of water but would you send a guillermo del toro fan to go and see it i would i mean i would certainly i don't think i would ever tell a guillermo del toro fan not to see one of his movies and and i am one you know i think i prefer kind of i guess the grotesque sentimental to the sentimental grotesque and this is sort of on the latter thing but you know if you're a more um you know if you're more partial to that romantic side of his filmmaking than the the grotesque side i think you know certainly you'll respond to this movie and a lot of other people have so and you get i mean you get we didn't talk about it at all but another high point you get a great sex scene love scene the first time that they get together at her apartment again is a a sort of impossible physically impossible dreamy scene but one that one that i I carried with me coming out of the movie yeah and it is i mean we should should, i mean this is very much like an adult fairy tale like i found myself at moments in it wondering like oh if I could, my, I wonder if I could take my eight-year-old daughter to this, and then something else would happen. Like, oh, 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 no! <laughs> yeah, the yeah. sex isn't graphic at all, but it's erotic. It's yeah. definitely, frankly, yeah. Erotic. And there's, there's, you know, the masturbation, and there's this very kind of bloody, like, gory stuff that you mentioned. There's a cat getting its head bit off. I mean, there's definitely moments where, um, yeah, I would, <laughs> I would not take a sort of young child to this. But there are moments that feel very kind of, you know, childlike in the simplicity and wonder. And I guess they're just kind of in there along with the more grotesque elements. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that even though I didn't love this movie, I hope it does well. I hope it finds its audience. It finds those people that will be completely entranced and swoony. Yep. All right. Thanks so much for coming in to discuss The Shape of Water. Oh, thank you, Dana. And let's spoil again soon. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like this show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows that we should cover on the Spoiler Special or any other feedback you'd like to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. If Then is a new podcast about technology, society, and power. Every week, Slate's April Glazer and Will Oremus, two wonderful technology writers, will take you on a lively tour of the tech news that actually matters, from fake news in your Facebook feed to the algorithms that want your job to the Uber drivers who want a job with benefits. With newsmaking interviews of key tech industry figures, fascinating academics, and top tech journalists, 
Will and April will explore not only how the technology that's shaping our world works, but the ideas, the ideologies, the incentives, and the biases that underlie it. And guess what? They don't always agree. If Then comes out every Wednesday. You can look for it wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. Thanks for listening and hope to spoil again with you soon.